Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. And welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this. Hump Day? <laughs> We've made it to Hump Day, and what a delightful day it is outside. The temperature expected to soar right to around 70 here in central Mississippi. I think it's actually north of 70. Oh, man. That is so awesome. Short-sleeve weather. Wow. We are there. We are looking forward to daylight saving time. I'm going to say it again. Coming about on March the 10th. Does that right mean the groundhog the was right? What's that? Does that mean the groundhog was right? <laughs> I think so. Oh, man. We're, uh, we're here. We're excited to be here bringing you another episode of Middays at 1120. It's Juan Barnett, Mississippi Senator, represents District 34, serves as the chair of the Senate Corrections Committee and the vice chair of the Senate Enrolled Bills Committee. He's got a bill, Rhino, SB 2353, that I believe calls for the closure of parchment. We'll look it up and get the details on that, but uh, there's some legislation. You can, by the way, check out a story about this bill at supertalk.fm. Our news team over there is covering that matter, so we look forward to talking to the senator. And then Pepper Crutcher, attorney at Balsh and Bingham, he's coming on at 12.05. You know, this issue of health care slash Medicaid expansion is uh, garnering much attention down there at the Capitol. And and so those of you that read the article that uh, was published at supertalk.fm that I wrote about a month ago, one of the proposals that I made, just, just thinking outside the box here, was to allow private companies, which offer group coverage to their employees, and of course by federal law, all companies with more than 50 employees are mandated to do so. If they don't, they pay pretty stiff penalties to the federal government, tax penalties, if you will. Uh, But those that do, which is very common, I mean, uh, in fact, one of the questions I've asked, Rhino, is how many companies in the state of Mississippi are not in compliance with that law? I can't get that info. I'm not sure where to get it. How many companies who have more than 50 employees are not providing coverage 
And I doubt it's any. I mean, if it is, it's got to be a small number, honestly. But they're mandated by law to pay a penalty for that as part of the Affordable Care Act. But here's where I'm going. I made this suggestion. I know it's crazy. It's off the wall. It may be viewed as radical. As a private company, what if I could adopt, for lack of a better term, those who don't have coverage but meet certain criteria? Their income, for example. They're just low-income workers. In lieu of Medicaid expansion, let me adopt them and put them on my group coverage. I'll pay for it, it, it just as a, a, an act of kindness, honestly. Maybe think about giving me some small tax credit just for, for getting these people coverage. They'd get really good private commercial coverage, uh, which means that the network that they would have access to, the provider network, would be robust. The provider would get reimbursed at commercial rates as opposed to Medicaid rates, which are generally 70-75% of commercial coverage. And we would, uh, again, start to reduce the numbers of uninsured. Now, I know there's lots of details to be worked out, but, of course, one of the primary ones is how do you get the carrier to agree to allow you as a private company to cover these individuals or families, as the case may be, if they're not working for you. Well, it turns out that gets into all kinds of crazy, as you could expect, (laughs) regulatory roadblocks. And one of those is what's called ERISA. And and that's just um, the Employment Retirement Security Act, by the way, passed in 1974. And it deals with voluntary health plans um, that uh, and retirement plans, I believe, as well, offered by employers. It's brutally complicated. I think it's administered by the U.S. Department of Labor. So Pepper Crutcher is uh, an attorney at Bosch and Bingham and, and was the attorney representing us on employment matters, uh, my company, our company, uh, going back to its early days, honestly. And uh, this is what he does. He practices employment law. So he, he brings this up. And honestly, i got to tell you, right now, when he first brought it up to me, I mean, it's not that he doesn't like the idea. He thinks the idea has some merit, at least. It's like he starts talking to me about ERISA. And I'm thinking, why is it that every time you try to do something just maybe good, maybe off the wall, without government, government has to get inserted and screw everything up? That's the bottom line here. Like, we're just trying to help here. This is a good thing. Can't we figure out a way around that? So I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but I get frustrated about, but this is something that is in in lieu of government. Or is it because we're encroaching on their gig? We have to be the ones to take care of the needy. We can't let you private people do that. That seems to have been the um, M.O. of the federal government since the 30s. Probably, going back to then. So nonetheless, he's going to come in and talk about that um, and uh, also share his thoughts on the Medicaid program and this concern people have if we expanded Medicaid to the new coverage group of working, able-bodied adults, those that are covered by their employer. 
might see fit to leave their employer coverage if they're incurring any costs, which they usually are. I mean, in many cases, employers cover 100% of the employee and either some or none of the family, spouse, or dependents. In fact, uh, according to uh, various reports, studies that have researched this, the average company that provides uh, group coverage absorbs about 83% of the employee share and 73% of uh, family coverage. I believe in, in the state of Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, Rhino, those in, enrolled in the state's coverage, talking about workers in the state, 100% of the employee is covered. I think zero of spouse and or dependents, I believe, is the plan that's offered in the state of Mississippi. But nonetheless, it averages about 83% nationwide where an employer provides it. So the... That means the employee is responsible for 17 of their own and some or all of, if they have, a spouse and dependents. So if we expanded Medicaid, they could enroll in coverage in Medicaid, drop their employer coverage, 100% paid for. But, but now they're dealing with Medicaid, and they've got the Medicaid provider network, which could be better or worse than, probably worse, honestly, than their commercial uh, carriers network, talking about the providers that accept their coverage. So that would be a downside, but clearly it would cost them less money to do so. Now, the way the crazy law works, if they were to go to the exchange and get subsidized coverage, as long as the employer is providing coverage that is, quote, affordable, no penalty, if they just say, I don't want to I don't want to enroll in my employer coverage, I'm going to the exchange and get subsidized coverage. If it's not affordable, which is defined, I think, this year at around nine percent of their household income. Well, if it's not, then they can go to the exchange and the employer pays a penalty. So one question I've asked is, well, how many such situations are there in, in the state of Mississippi? And nobody knows. How many employers are paying a penalty? Because they have employees who have gone to the exchange and enrolled in coverage, subsidized coverage, because the insurance offered by the employer is, quote, not affordable under the law, as the law defines it. Nobody knows. I think that's would be valuable information. And I know I'm getting to the weeds here, but this is the complexities of debating the Medicaid expansion question. You get into all that, and I keep coming up with more questions that I feel like the legislature ought to have answers to uh, before any move is made, just just to know what the risk is. Because the folks that oppose it say, you're going to have a situation where a lot of people are going to leave their employer coverage, and they're going to enroll in Medicaid, and thus the numbers are going to be way higher than you estimate. But do we have any data to support that? I mean, in the state of Mississippi, you need to know at least what's the, the largest number that could be if every one of them did it, and then start from there. The president is forgiving more student loans, even though the Supreme Court said you ain't supposed to do that. Coming right back. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. 
Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s, Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, the smooth sounds of the Allman Brothers there. So, also, there were a number of bills filed yesterday, uh, Rhino, a bunch of them. Of course, well, it was Monday, actually, was the deadline. And my understanding is some 20 were filed with respect to PERS, something we've talked about quite a bit. But I didn't see any, and I haven't dug into them. I will, I will uh, be truthful here. I haven't dug into them with uh, great intensity just as of yet. But best I can tell, there's some 20. Really, none of them changed the, the funding model. So I'm not sure that we're accomplishing anything here. There were some proposals to give, uh, make the plan available to county and city attorneys as well as bus drivers for public schools. I wasn't even aware they weren't eligible to participate in PERS, honestly. And, of course, all that really means is that you're adding to the roles of those con- contributing today. And um, and so that just increases revenue to the system. I, I can't see that that amounts to, honestly, a whole lot of money when you got a roughly $22, 24000000000 billion unfunded liability. I, I don't see how that really helps. I mean, it helps some. Everything helps a little bit, of course, but I don't see it as being really that remarkable, that substantial. And there's some other proposals that would take away benefits from those convicted of felonies until their their sentences are carried out. I mean, how many people can that be? People that are... Uh, perhaps incarcerated or under sentencing for committing a felony and participate in PERS? Man, does that mean we're hiring and electing a lot of people that are felons? That's kind of sad. So, uh, again, hadn't dug into that, but absolutely will. Um, And then, of course, the issue of Medicaid expansion. Oh, something else, you know, before I get to that. The uh, prior authorization bill, I believe that has passed. The prior authorization was a bill that um, both chambers passed. I believe the governor, if I'm not mistaken, Rhino, this morning signed it. And, and so this is really just something that would streamline and speed up the process of insurers authorizing medical treatment, medical care, which anybody that's ever had to deal with that, it's it's pretty frustrating when you wait and wait and wait and your providers are hounding them. It's not the most efficient system, and the proposal was to create a portal for that purpose. I was a little surprised to find out how manual that process is, honestly. So... Uh, but I do think, check me out on that, Ryan. I'm pretty sure the, that the governor signed that uh, this morning. 
I thought I saw a notification on that, but we'll we'll check that out. Uh, well, so what? Oh yeah, back to the other bills. Let's go. So Medicaid expansion. There's some some bills that have obviously been filed on that, but that happens virtually annually. I will tell you that I attended a presentation yesterday to the House Medicaid Committee. I don't know how many are on the committee. I'm going to guess just counting based on my eyeballs sitting in the room there at the Capitol. Fifteen or so maybe on the committee, chaired by Representative Missy McGee. Uh, But there was a presentation from the Hilltop Group. Hilltop, maybe it's not Hilltop Group, Hilltop something. But I'm familiar with with their report, which was published a couple of years ago, and it was commissioned by a health advocacy group here in Mississippi. They're from Maryland, and uh, the individuals involved in in doing the research and then compiling that report made a presentation yesterday. It was lengthy. I'm going to say maybe hour and a half, two-hour total presentation. And it, it focused on the economic impact of Medicaid expansion on the state. Now, it obviously presented it in a very positive light from an economic perspective, strictly from an economic perspective. For every every report, Rhino, that you can consume that touts the positives, you can find another one that touts the negatives. And that's kind of where we are. I mean, there's just a series of... of um, Analyses, I think, is the fair way to to describe it on both sides. And it's a situation where anybody can, I feel like, compile a data set of numbers and detailed analyses to support almost any position, especially one like this that involves significant money, a lot of money. You're talking about $150 million roughly a year to the state and over a billion coming down, billion two, billion five, somewhere in that range. It all all relies on how many people actually would would sign up in the new expansion group uh, from the federal government. So uh, it uh, it was a good presentation from the perspective of being thorough and addressing all the, the, uh, the consequences, all of the impact, and uh, it seemed to be received very positively. Again, this is just me sitting in the room observing body English and questions and facial expressions trying to read the room uh, of the legislators. And they asked good questions and got good feedback. And, of course, there was lots of press there and lots of other interested parties as well, policy advocates. Now, I will tell you, it's... um, it's probably no secret that uh, there are a lot of people in the room that get a little glazed over there when they're watching all this data. And may I say something else without being offensive here? I'm going to anyhow. <laughs> Can we get a bigger screen in the room? <laughs> I mean, unless you're four feet away from it, you can't see it. It's it's like a television. I don't know the exact size. I'm going to guess it's a 70 or 80 inch it's two-thirds the size of that window you're looking through between me and you. 
Now, when you're in a room where, consider where I am right now, you're 30 feet behind me, you got a PowerPoint with a bunch of words on it, you can't see it. My eyes are pretty dang good. Um, so, just a suggestion. Maybe we need a screen we can pull. I don't know if that's even possible. You can mount them on the ceiling, though. It doesn't have to retract into, because that's a tall order in the Capitol. It's an old structure. But can we get a bigger screen? <laughs> and and honestly, Ronald, it may not be a problem when you're having a meeting and it's eight people at the table with the screen at the end. But when it's one like this, because it's a big room on the first floor, and I'm going to guess there was 120 people in that room, maybe a few less than that, that are 60 feet away from that screen. You can't see that. You would think they would have a projector and screen set up. That's exactly right. Even if it's mobile where you can move it to different committee or conference rooms when necessary. Yeah. And I'm look, I'm not being critical here. It's just an observation. I don't know that I've been to a meeting in that specific room where the screen was used. Some of the other rooms that do have like multiple screens, like the old Supreme Court. I want to say it's got multiple screens. You can see them. That room's not as big as the one we were in yesterday. It's just a suggestion. Can Can we get a bigger screen so that everybody can see the information that's being projected? So, um, let's see here. The talking about, oh yeah, speaking of the weather, 1971 tornado outbreak wiped out the Delta. Wow, I didn't remember that. Did y'all forget it's going to be 113 degrees soon? (laughs) Hold off on the warm. That's what Greta, what's her name? Thunberg. That's what she says, right? We're headed for... Well, no, she's she's given up on climate change. Oh, what is it now? She's now fighting for Gaza. (laughs) I didn't know that. She's changed causes. Has she seen the error of her ways on climate change? Or just needs a new cause? she's just an (laughs) attention-sinking clout chaser. (laughs) Needs a new cause. Speaking of uh, weather phenomena, Scary Gary comes in the studio this morning when I was setting up and uh, informs me of a, a situation involving some passenger commercial jetliners. I didn't know. You, you know, you're shaking your head. Oh, yeah. You've seen it. 800 miles per hour. And I said to Scary, Man, they must have been caught in a jet stream. You know, it's the only way because they usually cruise 550, 575. And so I, I did I look it up, and they were, in fact, going 800 miles an hour over the Atlantic. And this is because, once I said, one of them hit 840, one of the fastest speeds ever recorded for a commercial jet. And that, of course, is because it had... Jet stream winds of 265 miles per hour at that altitude on their tail, tail winds. How cool is that? I wonder if it buffeted him around a little oh, bit, though. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's really bad when it's a headwind. We're coming right back. Stay with us. Bring the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. We are back in the Element Well Studio. 
So a little clarification. The legislature, both houses have agreed and both houses have uh, uh, approved and passed this uh, insurance uh, bill that uh, is the health insurance bill on prior authorization. The governor has not yet signed it. I just want to clarify that. So it's headed to his desk. We shall see what he does. There, he had some issues with this, as I recall. Last time uh, such a measure was passed, and I want to say it had to do with who was going to administer the program and, and kind of be the enforcer, if you will. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. But So I misspoke. I, I got a little ahead. Has not been... Signed into law by the governor, simply passed both houses. Just want to clarify that. I'm looking for the PERS bills at this point. Hadn't got that just yet. But I do see and have uh, up and ready to discuss the measure authored by Senator Juan Barnett, which would, uh, I'll read here just the caption, an act to phase down the operation of the state penitentiary at Parchment and Sunflower and Quitman counties over a four-year period and transfer its inmates, employees, and programs to other state and regional facilities of the Mississippi Department of Corrections. So we look forward to that discussion as well. So these airplanes, 265 miles an hour, jet stream on their tail three commercial aircraft hit speeds above 801 soared to 840 this was above the atlantic i think they said that some of them got uh to their destination 30 40 minutes ahead of time right incredible there was even some video going around reported to be from one of the flights, and yeah, it was a pretty bumpy ride. I, I figured. Even if it's on your tail, it can be bumpy, because they're just, they're not sort of calm. When it's going 265, it's just going to buffet you around. So I'm looking at a tweet from the National Weather Service in Baltimore, Washington, the BWI airport there. This evening's weather balloon launch detected the second strongest upper-level wind recorded in local history going back to the mid-20th century. Around 34,000, 35,000 feet, winds were at 230 knots, or that's 265 miles per hour. For those flying eastbound in a jet, there will be quite a tailwind. Yep, that's what they got. So there you go. So um, we got we talked about this yesterday, but it's worthy of more discussion. Is that we got another government shutdown looming on March the first, a week from Friday. Got these spending bills that have to be passed, and the Congress is not in session. I think they get back next week. Have three days. I they're coming back on the twenty eighth, so they'll have. Three days, essentially. I don't see it happening. I just don't. I think we're poised for another continuing resolution. Just keep on kicking it down the road. And keep keep this in mind. This is for fiscal year 24, which ends September 30th. They should have already done that and be working on 25 right now. I don't think this is helping the Republicans, honestly, with the uh, election 
not too in the not too distant future, coming up in November. Of course, every House seat, again, I wouldn't be surprised if the House doesn't flip and the Senate maybe goes into Republican hands by a seat at the most, maybe two, is where it looks like we're headed. The former president was on with Laura Ingram last night in a town hall in South Carolina as the primary approaches, and uh, he sounded like he's maybe leaning towards Senator Tim Scott as his running mate. He uh, praised the senator, saying, as he has before, he's much better campaigning for me than he is himself, is what the former president said. So we shall see. And I think with respect to the vice presidential candidate, I don't know that that sways a lot of votes other than we should be concerned about, I think mostly folks on the focus on the president. It's the point I'm making. We should be concerned, however, that in the event, God forbid, that the vice president has to assume the office of presidency, it needs to be somebody that can handle it. We surely don't have that situation today. So right now we have an incompetent president an incompetent vice president that would succeed him. So in this situation, Mr. Trump, of course, can only serve one term. And and think about this. Whomever he selects is likely going to have a huge leg up and be the front runner in the 28th cycle as the presidential candidate. So that's big. That's kind of right in your ticket. I know that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's been hanging around somewhat at Mar-a-Lago. He's been a very outspoken supporter of the former president. i got to believe he's in the mix as well. But it also feels like at the end of the day, it's probably going to be a female. I'm not sure we'll see two white males ever as candidates as a ticket. Maybe Trump and Pence were the last. I don't know. It's just a thought. Just the way everything's going wacko these days. Yeah, but I mean, everything went wacko in the late 60s and 70s, and eventually the pendulum swung back to sanity. It did. You're you're right. I do agree. You're right. It's just, at this point, I can't, I can't see it. I guess it's today. You know, I'm not saying that folks don't wake up and realize it really don't matter at the end of the day. So... I got to tell you, I was a little taken back yesterday with Professor Christopher Green in his analysis of this Trump verdict to learn that such laws exist in every state. I mean, that was my impression from his discussion. And they're just not invoked. They're not used. They're they're scary, kind of, to me. It just sounds like someone with a political axe to grind that has some sort of authority could just wake up one day and say, I'm going after that person on some crazy basis. In this case, you inflated your assets, even though nobody got hurt. Now the former president is not only been ordered to pay $355 million, but about $100 million of interest, which has accrued thus far. It is accruing every day. And if he intends to appeal, which I believe he will, I'm told you have to post an appeal bond 
and that's usually 20-25% of the value of the judgment. So he may have to come up with as much as $100 million cash just to get an appeal bond, to secure an appeal. Man, that seems crazy. In the meantime, you've seen these reports of truckers boycotting to protest the ruling against the former president. And there's a, a video I caught of a female trucker, which has joined the boycott, says it could shut New York City down. If New York loses just 10% of the trucks going there, their prices are going to skyrocket on everything from milk to eggs to any type of goods that the consumer needs. You know, I guess what bothers me here is that, and I get the trucker's response here. I understand their frustration. I'm frustrated with it ruling, too. But, you know, you you end up hurting, unfortunately, a lot of people who had nothing to do with this. They ended up paying the price for these ideologues, for these radicals, for these political zealots that um, certainly have nothing for Mr. Trump. They're consumed with him. And using all the power they have, abusing it, honestly, to uh, to harm him and to render him. I mean, what they're looking to do is render him unable to campaign and to secure election to the White House. That's what they're trying to do. No secret there. Oh, man. We, we told you earlier about the president. Oh, oh one more thing about that. The Attorney General of New York, Letitia James, is actually now floating the idea of seizing Mr. Trump's assets, it's mainly properties, real estate, in New York if he ignores the fine. So that means she would get some sort of court order that would allow her to go take control of those assets. That's scary. That's fascism. It's exactly what it is. Uh, in the meantime, we told you earlier, we'll get on this in the next segment about the president who is um, dealing with these student loans, just canceling these student loans, even though he's not supposed to be. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio. I'm Rex Baker with Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. <laughs> I felt like it was TV theme show Thursday had returned here. No, I just had the Barney, Mil- Barney Miller theme song <laughs> stuck in my head last night. And I was like, wait, it'd be perfect to play tomorrow. But no, it's. Uh, I thought Abe Vigoda's birthday was today. In fact, it's February 24th. Abe Vigoda. 
What is he, 98? I mean... I think he's no longer with us. Okay, I think that's right. Well, you said birthday. I was expecting maybe he was still with us. Wow. So... um, We lost him in January of 2016 at the age of 94. Okay. So he lived a a very long, productive life. What a great show that was. Oh, yeah. You know, I have to say... And they don't make theme songs like that anymore. That is so true. Very creative, too. And it, and it, it kind of got you fired up about the show, right, when you heard the theme song. Usually they'd open up with a little scene, and then, boom, they break to the theme song and the credits and so forth. That was fun TV in those days. Apparently, according to the producer of the theme song, working with jazz fusion-style musicians written by Jack Elliott and Alan Ferguson, the studio musician Chuck Bergorfer. Yeah. At the request of producer Dominic Hauser, Dominic said, can you do something on the bass? This guy's a cop in New York. Can we just start it off with the bass? <laughs> well, it's good. So he just improvised and it, it, and it was great. Well, I will say this. The, the thing that I, always comes in my mind every time, and I, I like to watch the show every now and then. It um, it airs on some of those channels that, that uh, do... Um, have a schedule that's pretty much full of all the old classic TV shows, that being one of them. Me TV, FE TV, or a couple of those. But what I was going to say is that if you recall the while the theme song's playing and and there's the video, the scenes, the background there. One of them is is looking at Manhattan from over oh, yeah. the water. The skyline. Yeah, the skyline there, and what you see are the twin towers which are no longer with us because of 9-11. That always pops into my head, like, man, that was such a cool sight that unfortunately doesn't exist anymore because idiots flew airplanes into it. And that's being kind when you call them idiots. Murderous thugs, shall we say? Um, But I always think about that, just how neat that skyline looked and iconic, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I was going to tell you that the president wanted to pass that on. He has forgiven $1.2 billion in student debt six months ahead of schedule. And our old buddy, how about a beer, hon? <laughs> uh, Liz Warren, she is absolutely, she's just uh, celebrating this. She's giddy about the student loan forgiveness from uh, this particular president. says, the POTUS just canceled student loan, student debt, under the new SAVE, S-A-V-E. They come up with these clever acronyms, don't they, for these bills, for over 150,000 Americans. This was, by the way, she tweeted this today, who have been paying off their loans for over a decade. Now nearly 4 million borrowers have gotten much-deserved student loan relief under President Biden. <laughs> you ready for this? This is a double woohoo moment. <laughs> I can't stop laughing when I read that. All I could think about was, how about a beer, huh? <laughs> uh, so that's where we are. Swipe of a pen. She's no excited attention. because she's running for re-election, and now she has a big platform um, blank to run on. Well, uh, I, you know. for me, more free stuff. It's it's correct. No responsibility. It's it's crazy. Um, I I don't know. Well, I guess what bothers me is why have a Supreme Court that handles down, hands down a ruling? Now, honestly, this is not 
this does not go contrary to the ruling? The, uh, this is another situation where the deep state administrative bureaucracy of agencies, the managerial class, as Vivek Ramaswamy calls them, they went in, they dug in, the president says, okay, the Supreme Court, they killed our idea. Go figure out a way for I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but I believe this is likely how the conversation went. I mean, you don't really have to speculate when the president came out and said, we're going to do it and let the courts deal with well, it. Well, that's true. He did. So they come up with a way to circumvent, essentially, the ruling and find some obscure approach, some create. If only they used as much creative and innovative thought to actually grow the economy rather than redistributing what's already in it, which is what they focus on. But, yeah, they come up with a way to say, oh, yeah, under this rule and this reg and this article, this section, this subsection. Here's what you can do, Mr. President. Voila! Next thing you know, another $1.2 billion gone. It's nuts! Well, we're going to step aside uh, for a break. When we come back in the next segment after Fox News and Super Talk News, I'm going to talk to you about a little visit I'm paying down to the Mississippi State Capitol today. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone, it's hour two of middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this hump day. I can't get over Liz Warren. This is a double woohoo moment. <laughs> Only she would be so exuberant, ecstatic over canceling student loans because it doesn't cost us jack squat, right? Unbelievable. So yesterday I was telling you that um, I attended a uh, a Medicaid uh, House Medicaid Committee meeting where a group that had done an analysis on the economic impact of Medicaid expansion in the state of Mississippi, and they've done it for numerous other states as well. But this is uh, this is a consulting group that specializes in the subject matter and these kinds of. Uh, this kind of research and reporting. And they presented their findings. It's been out there a couple of years, by the way. I remember reading this report a couple of years ago when it was uh, first published. But I think it's fair to say because the legislature seems to be wanting to at least be more informed and consume more information, that was the reason they were in in town. They're from uh, Maryland, by the way. So today... There is a, uh, a public health committee hearing, 3 o'clock. And I have been uh, asked to, to speak. Short, short little 15, 10, 15 minutes of remarks. And, and I'm going to do that. And my message, honestly, is going to be very consistent with what I wrote in the article. I don't... Uh, have much outside of that to say. 
I have uh, consumed numerous articles, reports, etc., on the pros and cons. This is what's frustrating about a complex issue like this. For every article and report and analysis that you read that is more favorable, there are five that are un, and vice versa. And that's that's what's hard about this, is that, okay, who do you believe here? Because I know this may sound shocking. When you when you have, when you've staked a particular position on a on a complex, controversial issue, you, guess what? You can kind of make numbers say about anything you want to support your position. And I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm just saying you see that a lot. Do you not? Am I being fair there, Rhino? In that? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... And I'm not saying that's what the Hilltop Group did yesterday. All I'm saying is that when you look at the both sides of this issue, the pros and cons, you you can come up with all kinds of support for both ways. What I try to do in the article I wrote, not didn't get into the, nearly the level of detail that the Hilltop Group did in their economic impact analysis, but I did touch on some of those uh, the same, is that this is what the opponents say, this is what the proponents say, this is kind of my take on it, my opinion on, on their assessment on both sides. And as is always, almost always the case, nobody ever goes back after the fact. And I'm not just talking about Medicaid expansion, but how many times have I talked about how, uh, I guess, uh, lawmakers, especially in Washington, we're going to do this, that, and the other, and this bill's going to do that, and they pass it, and then nobody ever goes back to see, did it really do that? The Trump tax cuts is a fantastic example where the left said, oh, my gosh, the economy is going to crash if we pass this thing. We're all going to be right. We're all going to be homeless and hungry. And I'm exaggerating, but my gosh, they're railing against it. None of that happened. Well, by the same token, all the great stuff that we were told was going to happen, it didn't really happen to that level either. Somewhere in the middle is usually the truth. Uh, and I understand the passion people have when they're trying to make their case and assert a position and support it. I, man, I get that. I know from acquiring companies and being involved in in countless deals and, and only winning a small percentage of those. That's the it's a numbers game. You you work on twenty to win one. Um, you know, whenever an investment bankers man, they can they can put these packages together when they're selling an asset. Think about a realtor that's promoting a home. Man, it seems like they are always make it look better than it is when you show up in person. Not all the time, but in general, they're experts. They're marketing people. They're experts on presenting, right? Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. They present an asset, and it looks way better. Well, investment bankers, think about them as being kind of realtors for companies. I mean, there's an entire industry of fancy furniture that just gets moved from empty house to empty house <laughs> to make the house look good well, for a, a realtor. Good, good point. And they all tell you to make it look like you're ready to live in it today, right? That's the key to selling it. And then empty houses, usually they say, are harder, unless they're brand new, I guess. You know, but it's a little different. But a company, when you get these investment bankers, and they put these 70, 80-page, uh, they call them uh, pitch books or confidential uh, information memorandums. The SIMS is what the, the uh, acronym is. Man, it's unbelievable how good they make those companies look, especially when you flip to the financial analysis and the pro formas going out. Well, my rule of thumb was 
Like, cut about 30% off the revenue and increase the expenses 20. That's probably what the truth is. That's kind of what this is all about, in my view. Uh, and I, I feel like more than anything with respect to this issue of expansion, what's needed is a lot more data, a lot more data. And there may be some out there that say, no, Gerard, we got all the data we need. That's fine. I, I just, I'm a guy, I guess, that that likes to have as much data as possible at my disposal, in my hands. Because both on the pro side and the con side, I just feel like more data is needed. And I know that a lot of folks on the pro side think about the recent election for governor where Brandon Presley made this a a marquee feature of his campaign. And, you know, and he was basically saying this will save our hospitals. Remember, he had to save our hospital tour, except I don't believe that's true. And if it is and I've said this on the air, you've heard me right, oh, many times, well, then you hospitals that are saying we need this Medicaid expansion in order to to be economically viable, because I agree, there's a lot of them in the state of Mississippi, they're losing money. By the way, there's not just in the rural areas, the ones in the urban areas, they're losing money too. It's it's a, It's a broken model economically. But where I'm going with this is, well, then have you sat down and actually developed A pro forma showing, using like the last three years of operations and plugging in Medicaid expansion, saying this is what it would have looked like if we had expansion in place, if we'd have been reimbursed under expansion. And that's complicated. I get it. But that's the case you need to make. That's the data we need. Rather than just say, just trust me, if you do this, this will be the outcome. Well, I don't believe that. It's a trust but verify. Ronald Reagan's famous declaration, right, talking about the Russians. You can tell me you're dismantling your nukes and repositioning and so forth, but we got to have a way to verify that, was his message. Well, same thing here. So I think that's a reasonable request of uh, of our health care institutions. Put, put together a pro forma showing that. On the other hand, those who oppose it to say, we're going to have all these people that are currently covered by their employer, and they're going to leave leave their employer coverage, and they're going to go enroll in Medicaid, and thus the numbers are going to be way more than what, what is being widely estimated, which is between two hundred twenty and 250000 Okay, that's a fair concern. Um, and it's a fair concern in, in a number of ways. First... If the roles are, or if the number of people who sign up under expansion are greater than estimated, the state's 10% cost is higher. Just more people. That's one one concern. The other concern is if they come off of commercial coverage and they go to Medicaid, that means the providers are getting getting reimbursed at a lower level. Today, this patient, I'm getting reimbursed by Blue Cross. It's 120 bucks. Oh, you just went to Medicaid under expansion. Now I'm only getting 75. You know exactly what I'm talking about there. That's how it works. So that's a reasonable concern. But how many people is that? How, so can somebody tell me how many people who have an income below 138% of the federal poverty level are currently enrolled in their employer group coverage and are paying something for it and are saying, yeah, this Medicaid expansion is enacted. I'm leaving my employer group. I'm going to Medicaid. I think that's a reasonable request. At least know how big the pool of such people are. Instead of just saying, oh, yeah. So that's a reasonable request. I don't know if that data is available. seems like we could. 
You know, one of the problems we have is a lot of people in our state, you can't even determine if they're eligible based on their income because they don't file tax returns. They don't have any records to substantiate their income. That's a problem. Heck, you go to the ACA exchange portal and, and uh, start applying, they just kind of take your word for it, and then they wait till they get your tax return, assuming you file one, you know, a year from now, and then they make some adjustments based on that. I mean, it's a problem. So if we're going to expand Medicaid in the state, you better give the Division of Medicaid a bunch of resources to administer it. Because this is going to be a nightmare. Coming right back in the Element Well studio with Senator Juan Barnett. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, we appreciate you uh, joining us today. We welcome to the program Senator Juan Barnett. He represents District 34. That incorporates Forest, Jasper, and Jones County. Serves as the chair of the Senate Corrections Committee, the vice chair of the Senate Enrolled Bills Committee. Senator, good to see you, sir. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you all for having me. All right, so we uh, wanted to talk to you about this uh, bill that you have authored, SB 2353. I I read the caption to the audience earlier that uh, this bill apparently calls for uh, the phasing down the operation, is the way it's described in in the measure of the state penitentiary at Parchman. Uh, over a four-year period of time, an extended period of time, and then transferring essentially the operations to to other facilities operated by the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Did I accurately describe uh, the nature of the bill? For the most part, yeah. Okay, well, tell us about it. Well, what this is, it's, it's, um, it's time for Mississippi to move on past parchment, uh, as we know it today as our state penitentiary system. And so the goal of this bill in the phase-down period is to give MDLC an opportunity to move its operations from Parchman to another facility that either one we may have to build or two look at buying another facility um, that's already in the Delta so that um, we don't create a vacuum um, of taking away jobs or anything like that from those people who are currently working at Parchman who currently live in the Delta. Um and the four-year plan, again, is to make sure that we safely move those individuals from parchment to another facility. Um, and some people ask, why four years? Well, we just want to make sure that we do it right. And this bill itself is about three years in the making. Okay. Um, so is, is, is there concern, Senator, about the parchment facility specifically? Well, the parchment facility specifically, you know, we're talking about a facility that's, you know, parchment itself is like 123 years old. Right. And we have so many buildings there that we're not using, some that we are using, but some that we just can't use, period, never, ever. But regardless of that, we're still spending taxpayers' monies on a facility and on some of the facilities that just – I mean, just just too old, and some, you know, regardless of how much patchwork we do today, we'll never fix that problem. And I know that some have said, that, you know, well, M, um, 
have said that um, Department of Justice is kind of satisfied where we are now. Well, we all know how that is. To, we all know how that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we satisfied them today until the next things break out, and then here they come again. Right. And so the best thing to do is not just fix a problem or patch on it to get us by today, but let's go in on and, and fix this thing and make it a permanent fix so that when they come back, they can say, hey, Mississippi did what Alabama should have done. And that's to move on before and make sure that we take care of these things versus being forced like Alabama. Alabama to do with a billion dollar project that they're facing. Yeah. Okay. So, so the obvious question to me that sticks out is: Do we have uh, the space, and and do we have the the assets and the resources we need at the other facilities to to accommodate the transfer here? There is space um, at the other facilities uh, so that we can do this. All of these things have been thought out before okay. this bill has been dropped, and that's why I said it's been a three year uh, bill in the making. How does Commissioner Kane feel about this? I really haven't talked to Commissioner Kane to ask, you know, how how they feel about it. Uh, but I can say, uh, as a taxpayer, not just as a legislator, but as a taxpayer, uh, I would like to see, you know, my tax dollars um, being spent uh, in areas where we can see some good as a result of it, and not just my tax dollars being thrown away into something uh, that we won't ever fix. Okay, so just to clarify, though, we're not we're not suggesting in this in this measure here that we would release anyone from parchment um, in advance of their schedule release date. No, that their this, sentencing no, doesn't change, no. parole, sentencing everything doesn't else. Change, okay. Parole doesn't change. Okay. None of those things change. We're just trying to put them in a different. We're house. just trying to put them in a different location. Okay, and and. And so I'll admit, I've seen some uh, some images, some video and still photos uh, of the Parchman facility, and um, it's it's less than impressive. There's no doubt about that. Are the are the conditions better at these other facilities? Conditions are better. You know, we're talking about a facility that's, you know, 20 plus years old compared to facilities (laughs) at Parchman that that are way outdated in that regard. Okay. So, right. yes. And we're talking about better security uh, things and, you know, that are in place already at the new facility versus where we are at Parchment. Just a whole lot of things will be better if we're able to move on past that. And you asked a question earlier about monies. Yeah. Uh, how do we pay for this in monies? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's a simple fix there. Uh, I would much rather uh, spend $10, $15 million a year at the, on the purchase of buying something that we can use for the next 50 to 60 years versus spending $10, 15000000 million a year on something um, that we're just throwing money away on. Okay. So you feel like that in investing in and uh, remodeling or improving or renovating parchment is is not a wise investment, that no. it'd, be, it'd be better to invest that in these other facilities. Exactly. And so, tell me again on on the impact of the workers in this these areas that rely on parchment for their jobs. Exactly, uh, and and again, you know, like I said, this bill is three years in the making, and and the number one thing that I thought about uh, was how do we protect the jobs of those people in the Delta? Okay. How do we protect the jobs of those people that work there? at parchment to make sure that they don't have to worry about that and the plan going forward is to like i said is to either build or acquire a facility that's already there rename it because by law we have to have a 
designated state penitentiary. Okay. This place will now be the new designated state penitentiary. So all of those people were basically transferred to the new place that would be ran by MDOC, not by a private or anyone. It will be totally ran by MDOC. So that means it's still under state control, and those people will only just move from one location to another location. Okay. The worst thing, I guess, could be is that some may have to drive another 15 minutes farther to get to work, but it could be better for some that's 15 minutes closer to work. So, Gotcha. So is there, is there been uh, some uh, financial analyses uh, done on this that, that looks at what we're currently spending to operate parchment and what we would have to spend to, to and, build out a and, new facility and then operate it? Yeah, There is, and like I said, that's the reason why this has been a bill that's been working on for at least three years, is to make sure that we address all of these things, all of the questions that you are asking. Okay. How do we do this? How do we do this? How do we do this? Uh, and, and and I think we, for the most part, we have the answers to that. Okay. So th- then I guess, Senator, somebody that or some uh, number of people, I guess, you work with to develop this plan, because this, this would be a fairly involved plan, and not only to construction and renovation but of course the the phasing in and the transfer i mean there's a lot of logistics involved there i agree i agree and again that's why it's done over a four-year period it is not like you know we passed the bill today and and hopefully the governor agrees and we sign the bill you know it's not you know effective january uh, july 1st and we start this this process and it's you know right right now it gives everybody an opportunity to be able to um, to make this transition as you know as smooth as possible. Okay, what else is coming out of your committee this year? <laughs> well, the earned parole bill that that we had did before. We're going to ask for repealers, uh, extend the repealers on that. Okay, and and the other program. Um, that we did, we started a pilot program over at CMCF that really worked well, uh, where we allowed 25 uh, individuals uh, to be able to lead the facility every day and go out and work at a real job that's get paid a prevailing wage, and and it has just been so uh, so successful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the recidivism rate from that we had 50, 56 participants in that, uh, and out of all of those who completed that, only two return to prison when they're released. Two people. That's hmm. almost, I mean, that's a success in excess, in itself, because everybody understands how it is that when we can really reach out and really help people and show them that we believe in them, and, and but not just talk to them about how we, but show them and let them see how beneficial they can be. Uh, and, and we've have, you know, we have now have senators who have facilities like CMCF in their area and seen the benefits of this, how these people are working and stay at work. And they want to be a part of this as well. Hmm. So it's just it's just it's a real good thing. Uh, and the best thing about that is, is while these people are incarcerated, you know, Gerard, and working every day, they are paying state taxes. Hmm. OK, so they are paying their way in a sense. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, before you go, what what do you think the chances are of this legislation uh, passing? You say you've been working on it three years. Is this the first time you've ever actually filed a bill to do this? It's though? the first year that we okay. filed a bill on it. But like, what I do you think? think? I'm going to be real optimistic. Okay. On this, All right. You know, and and and, and I'm going to think that it's going to pass. Okay. I mean, why do I want to doubt my own self? I got you. <laughs> Senator, appreciate you coming in. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you all for yeah. having me. Mm-hmm. Coming yeah. right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio.
here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. I've just closed my eyes again. Climbed aboard the dream weave train. Trying to take away my worries of today. The great Gary Wright. You can still see him performing that song with the kind of glam epaulette coat on, gold epaulettes on the shoulders. Remember that? <laughs> he passed away last year, right? I think so. Yeah, in September. Yeah. So, the great Gary Wright. Appreciate that, Rhino. Good stuff there. So, we're back with you in the Element Well studio. Uh, we're just letting the folks know I'm headed down to the Capitol at 3 o'clock today. I've been asked to testify, speak in front of a joint hearing of the Public Health Committee. But I looked on the schedule. It looks like there's another committee. I don't know if that's Medicaid or what. And I, I guess that this request was prompted uh, by the piece that I wrote the article, but I don't know, honestly. I just got asked, and so I'm obliging and headed down there. I I will, of course, make it clear before I say anything that uh, I'm, I'm there as a private citizen on my own accord. I'm not a compensated lobbyist or a policy advocate. I'm obviously not an elected official. I don't have any equity interest in any health care institutions in the state. I might have some positions in some healthcare-related organizations that I don't know about because of third parties like Element Wealth, for example, that that uh, manages some of my assets. But in general, I don't really have any direct connection. I don't stand to lose or benefit in any way other than any other citizen in the state would. Um, but I'm certainly honored and and pleased to just share my thoughts, uh, most of which will be consistent with the piece I wrote. Uh, The presentation yesterday, again, really got into a great deal of uh, detail with respect to the economic impact of Medicaid expansion that that, uh, from the hilltop. At least the Hilltop Institute, if I'm not mistaken, is the name of the organization. And uh, that that was fascinating. Certainly listening to all that. Yeah, the Hilltop Institute. Uh, and just seeing their, their data and their numbers, and it, it was comprehensive. Now, a lot of this data is estimated. I, it's difficult, I think, to ascertain exact, precise numbers, whether you're talking about the number of new Medicaid enrollees or state cost, all of which is based on that estimate of new enrollees, 
there's some direct tax revenue, so keep in mind that there are, I believe, three private organizations that orchestrate the managed care function of the Medicaid program in Mississippi presently. And they do pay a tax. It's called an insurance premium tax, 3% of the premiums. And that, that applies even in their administration of Medicaid. It's still considered premium revenue to them, even though the state's paying them for that service in the form of premiums as their revenue. And they pay a tax on that. So if you're going to increase the number enrolled in Medicaid and thus the, the amount of premiums, then there's a tax associated with that that would come back to the state. So that's figured into their model. And then there's a, there's an indirect revenue component that they estimate, which is just based on, well, if you're going to inject a billion, six or seven into the, into the economy of the state from both the federal government and the state's share of the program, well, that has a ripple effect in the economy. Uh, that's a very difficult figure to, again, compute and determine. But nonetheless, they did. And, you, you know, some of that comes in the form of of um, those private hospitals that um, increase their bottom line and thus pay more income taxes. That's one thing. And then, of course, you've got Mississippi's unique in that we have a, an outsized number of publicly owned hospitals. And so you've got the uncompensated care aspect of that, that, um, of course, to state and local hospitals is, is estimated to be a substantial number because taxpayers are essentially absorbing those costs because they own those hospitals. The one that gets, I, I guess, referenced a lot is Greenwood LaFleur. Seems to be the one in the worst financial condition. We've interviewed the, the mayor of Greenwood a few times, Mayor Carolyn McAdams, about the situation at the hospital. And we remember Rhino pulled up the financial statements and looked, and they, I don't think they've produced a positive cash flow in about six years. And, uh, and so, the, at least from an estimated perspective, some of their uncompensated care would, would shift to being compensated and thus it would reduce their um, their the red ink that they are bleeding and uh, negative cash flow. And that would, of course, accrue to the taxpayer, since the taxpayers technically own that facility. So all of that's figured in. Um, there's also what's called eligibility shifts. This is kind of a, a more obscure aspect. And all that really means is that This is where the government goes out of their way. I was having a text conversation with a really smart person this morning about this, that the government just goes out of their way to make these things brutally complicated. But you got traditional Medicaid, where the federal government in Mississippi pays the highest, by the way, of all 50 states, because we're the poorest of all 50 states, about 77% of the cost of the traditional existing Medicaid program. But in expansion, in accordance with the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, that would be 90%. So you've got some enrolled in traditional Medicaid that could shift over potentially to expansion, and thus the federal government would pick up more. And that's figured into the economic model. You follow me on that, Rhino? So if you you could be an, uh, one who qualifies under the able-bodied adult, for example, um, 
coverage group under expansion that's presently being covered by one of the traditional groups, like the um, low-income caretaker, for example, a pregnant woman, for example. You shift them into the expansion coverage group, instead of getting 78% from the federal government, you get 90 And then there's this incentive that was included in the in uh, the American Rescue Plan, signed into law by President Joe Biden, March 2021. There's a five percentage point incentive to states that haven't expanded Medicaid to expand, and that five percentage points applies to traditional Medicaid for two years. My math before I saw this attended this meeting yesterday, pegged that number at about six hundred million bucks. Over the two years, the the uh, consultant who presented on behalf of the Hilltop Institute said it was $650 million, so I was close. But that would be two years. And so that's figured into the economic model as well. And then there's a the net cost, you know, to the state once you include all those figures. So, and some of that, again, is is somewhat speculative. You know, we, I don't know how you absolutely absolutely ascertain the number who would be eligible, and that's why it's kind of always presented as a range. So I'm headed down there this afternoon at 3 o'clock just to share my thoughts for what that's worth. I'm, I'm honored. I'm, I'm just a radio talk show host that used to be in the IT business that took an interest in this stuff back in 28. And I, if you've read my article, you know why. It's because... Uh, it, it looked like that uh, the government was going to impose a significant cost burden to provide insurance to um, our employees over and above what we were providing at the time, and I was concerned about that and was seeking some information, some guidance, so I could make business decisions and was frustrated because you you couldn't get that, not because people weren't qualified to provide that information, because it just wasn't available. And the thing that got me interested more than anything was what's called the family glitch, which, by the way, have you seen that, Ryan? It just got fixed last year. It was passed in 2010. It has been sitting out there unresolved for 14, 13 years. Finally, the IRS came out with a ruling on it. It's called the family glitch. You could literally end up with a situation, follow me here, folks, that you work, okay, you work for an employer, And you have, as a worker, you have individual coverage through your employer. Your spouse gets coverage in the ACA exchange, and your children are covered by Medicaid. That scenario is absolutely possible right now, today, in the state of Mississippi. And I talked to somebody at the Capitol yesterday that said they had constituents. This was a senator that have that exact situation right now, and they just deal with it to make sure their family's covered. How more complicated can we make it? We're stepping aside for a break. Don't forget at 12.05, it's Pepper Crutcher, attorney with Balsh and Bingham. We'll dig into some of this some more. Hey, this ah, It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! Yay. On Super Talk Mississippi.
We are back in the Element Well studio. So we got lots of questions here on the ceasefire tax line about this bill that would phase down the operation of a parchment, the state penitentiary and parchment. And and I, I share some of those um those I guess quests for information is probably the best way I could put it. Um Honestly, I I didn't keep digging because I was a little surprised, as uh, some others are as well, who shared that on the ceasefire tax line, that um, the senator has not really had this discussion with Commissioner Burrow King. Uh, so I I too was a little taken aback by that 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 he said that, and at that point, and I did ask, you know, what sort of financial analysis was available. And it, it, he indicated that uh, that had been conducted. And I'm looking at the bill right now, so you guys will know. It's 71 pages. And so I, I, I'm i going to try to dig into the details of it myself. Unfortunately, I, I didn't have time. I apologize for that before this interview today. But I, I really feel like that maybe the commissioner would be the one to pose some of these questions to. Because ultimately, as, as I see here, Rhino, in the bill, is that it, it instructs the commissioners. A lot of the commissioner shall language, you know what I mean? So it, it instructs the commissioner to develop, says, to develop and submit to the legislature a plan to bring about the decentralization of facilities within the state correctional system grounds at Parchment over a four-year period with recommendations for necessary legislation. So it sounds to me like a lot of these details from a logistics and financial perspective haven't been totally thought out and and documented, and, and that really this is more about perhaps commissioning the commissioner to develop this plan. And at that point, go back to the legislature and say, okay, this is what it'd take to do that, you know, from an asset perspective and a, and a um, financial perspective and just a logistical perspective. So it, there, there are some requirements that say the commissioner is authorized to receive and disperse private and public funds and grants which may be available for facilities, offender rehabilitation purposes, and related purposes development submit this consolidation plan. The commissioner is authorized and directed to promulgate rules and regulations to implement this four-year consolidation plan. So it seems to me like it confers an awful lot of power to the commissioner of corrections, I guess under the watch, if you will, and authority of the legislature to develop and then execute upon this plan. So it says that as part of the phase down, the commissioner shall ensure that any administrative functions and activities that support the entire Mississippi Department of Corrections, including but not limited to the textile production program at Parchment, shall be transferred to other appropriate facilities in the state correctional system. I guess the thing that's a little confusing is I did hear the senator say that to transfer to other correctional facilities, but also when I asked about the question about the folks working at Parchment in that local area, what, what would happen there? He seemed to indicate, well, they would transfer to the new facilities in the area is, uh, is kind of the impression I got. So still some questions, and uh, maybe it makes sense to um, have, a, have a discussion with Commissioner Kane to see to, to gauge his thoughts on this. But I, I, too, am a little surprised that the legislature really hasn't spoken to the commissioner about this plan, yet they're about to 
potentially, if this thing were to pass, dump a pretty big task on him, best I can tell. Hmm. Sad when my tax dollars are spent to help illegals and prisoners be more comfortable than people who bust their you-know-what every week. Well, I think it's a question of, of uh, if we're going to incarcerate people for breaking the law, you know, what those conditions need to look like. You know, I can say that based on just video and still photos I've seen of parchment, I wouldn't exactly say that they're more comfortable than uh, people who work. I mean, if that's that would shock me. I, I did see a report out of New York where there was some sort of uh, altercation, I guess, in a in a facility that's housing migrants, and the police were called in. You saw this, and they end up getting into a fight with the dang illegals, and the mayor's making excuses for it. Well, when you put three thousand people in this confined area, you know what. What do you expect sort of deal? It's like another day and you know in the life of New York City housing these illegals in all these facilities and now they're disrespecting American law enforcement. Do, do fights break out at every single Yankees or Mets game? No. So what about the Knicks or the Nets? Not that I'm aware of. I'm sure they have occasionally in the past but no this uh, he was making weak So he was excuses. talking out of his hind end. Pretty much, but he does that on a daily basis. So does the the esteemed governor of the state of New York, who's now saying, don't leave, businesses. We're only going after Trump. Oh, my gosh. So upside down. We're taking a break. It's Fox News, Super Talk News. Attorney Pepper Crutcher is up next. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is live with you now on this hump day. We welcome to the program Pepper Crutcher, attorney with a Bosch and Bingham. Uh, Pepper, good to see you. Good to see you, and good afternoon, Mississippi. Yeah, there you go. So uh, a little background. I've known Pepper for 40-something years, I think, at this point. Uh, when you uh, were, as you describe, a baby lawyer, <laughs> you uh, you were quite helpful uh, in our new business venture, helping us uh, set up all of our, our employment policies and procedures and practices and making sure we did everything in accordance with the law. And taking care of everybody, and that's uh, an invaluable service, by the way. Anybody out there thinking about starting a business or operating a business, it's essential these days to navigate the maze. And that's what you do on behalf of employers is navigate this complex maze of laws and regulations and everything else is crazy that they dump on us. I've started calling myself a lawyer engineer. (laughs) I like that. That's a very uh, appropriate way to describe it. So, all right, so... You read the article that I wrote. I'm just give a little background. I think will be interesting to the audience here. You you read the article uh, that I wrote um, about uh, just some off the wall thinking about how to address this the health care issue in the state with a focus on 
how do we get coverage to the uninsured that are currently burdening the health care system with receiving care and not paying for it? So that, that was my, my, um, my goal. And in the article, I talk about how I even got interested in this subject, and it goes back to a conversation that I know you will recall that, that we had. I called you on the telephone. I'd seen an ad from a candidate for president at the time, Barack Obama, talking about the shared responsibility, something that's a nightmare to you, right? You have to deal with this with the employers. It's, it's turned out to be less of a nightmare um, than the uh, requirement to file annual reports of your coverage officers. That, oh. That's that's okay. ended up being the thing that got more people find more than anything else. Okay. Well, the shared responsibility, as you know, the plan Mr. Obama had was way more egregious than what we ended up with. Yes. He had, and that's what I talk about in the article. But I reference uh, my attorney, call my attorney. That's you, as you know. I called you, and you said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> and I was a little passionate about it, like, man, I'm trying to make decisions today. This thing's going to cost me a fortune. You said, just wait a second. <laughs> First, this thing has to pass. I know, but I think it's going to pass. Then the Supreme Court, you know it's going to get challenged, and the Supreme Court's got to uphold it. Well, I think the Supreme Court's going to uphold it, and then it's got to be codified. And then, and then you, so I'm sitting there saying, well, how the heck do I make business decisions on the basis of that? We just don't know. But what you were telling me was true, was accurate. We really didn't. And then finally we get a law and we get some code and we're still making code. I just talked about that. Yes. This has become a pattern in modern American um, legislation. What happens is you got a lot of bad news that you can't get through Congress or a state legislature. Yeah. And so you, you assign the news writing to a, to an agency that will write the news months or years later so you don't have to talk about it when you're trying to pass the bill. <laughs> about right. Well, Nancy Pelosi famously told right. us. Uh, but as you know, uh, I know you were digging into the legislation, and I got curious, and, and this is what launched and sparked my interest in politics. And I got curious and started reading it, focusing on the employer provisions, the employer shared responsibility. Uh, and, and it gets into some, some legalese, of course, but the most difficult thing, as you know, Pepper, about reading 2,700-page bills is there's like a gazillion references to other code. And unless you got the IRS code at your disposal, you really sometimes couldn't tell what they were talking about in reading the legislation. That's that's correct. And it, more than that, a lot of it, the Affordable Care Act, uh, it, which, by the way, is 936 pages uh, if you print it on both sides in 10-point font. <laughs> and that's just the statute, not not the rules. The rules are thousands and thousands of extra pages. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it was cut and pasted from other existing right. st- statutes. So in order to know what this language means, you have to go find out where it was cut and pasted from and how that language has been interpreted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's So it's hard. So you have to have someone with your skills and knowledge to navigate that, but at the point we didn't have enough information that's what frustrated me and i just saw this guy's going to get elected he's going to focus on this i fear it's going to pass it's going to be permanent and i need to know how that affects me as a business owner financially and otherwise but this is this is what businesses have to deal with with respect to government on a daily basis. Yes, it's this what, unknown. What has happened is our government, especially our federal government, has commandeered private employers to do the social engineering projects that the government doesn't want to do and pay for directly. Yeah. And every time a new project comes down the pipe, they say, oh, let's let's put one more on employers and let them do the work for us. Yeah. And that's kind of where we are. So yeah. one one of the proposals that uh, that I 
um, outlined in the article is something I actually shared with you 10, 12 years ago. And it was, you recall, when I had two two uh, foster kids, and it was my frustration of not being able to put them on my private coverage. I was willing to pay for it, but in accordance with, in general, with federal law, without a whole bunch of paperwork and to, to get some sort of exception and waiver, they're going to be covered under Medicaid. And I wanted them on my private coverage. And I even went to DHS, who was a client of mine. And, and sorry, Gerard, we can't, we can't help you with that sort of deal. And I went to you. I said, well, I just had this idea. What if I just wanted to add people to my, my group coverage, my employer group coverage? I'll, I'll pay for it. I just want to add them. It sounds to me like I couldn't do that. And then you told me the other day, well, you had this thing called ERISA, and that hurt my head when you said that. <laughs> and then I remembered what the ERISA law was and thinking, I just want to help, man. Can't the government get out of the way? And that's where we are. Yes. What what that would require was a fundamental rethinking and rewrite of uh, the Employer Retirement Income Security Act, uh, which is is based on employer-sponsored benefit programs for employees and their household dependents. Why they got to make it so hard? I just, it was just a, a noble offer to help. That's all it really was. And the government says, "Oh no!" And I sometimes feel like, as I said on the show earlier, that they they would see that as me encroaching on their gig. You can't possibly help people. We're the only people that should do that, so we can get all the credit. Look, you might have, uh, assuming your insurer was willing to do it, which they wouldn't have been. Of course, uh, you might have gotten away with doing it unless you were audited, and then you might determine to have disqualified your plan for tax purposes, which means all the benefits of your contributions would have been taxable to your employees. As opposed to being pre-taxed. Yes. Which is a nightmare. and that's, right. that, and that, But that's a disparity, is it not? We had disparity in that group coverage, the uh, uh, premiums paid by the employer and the employer pre-tax in the individual market, they're not. You know, one of the ways that President Obama tried to sell uh, his original version of Obamacare to Republicans in Congress was by saying, look, you should be for the idea of getting employee health care decoupled from employment. So right. they're, they're, you're not having to pay for their health care. They're getting their health care through some other options. And so you can just focus on what they'd rather have anyway, which is dollars on their paycheck. Yeah, which goes and back, as you know, to World War II. Yes. It's, yeah. The idea of so-called fringe benefits was conceived of in World War II when we had price and wage controls and employers in an effort to compete in the market for employees said, well, we can't pay them anymore. We'll just give them something over here. And that's where the idea came from yes. of health, right? Yes. And Congress went along with it and created tax preferences for all kinds of employee benefits. And we now find that we've created a... Um, a prisoner of our, uh, we're prisoners of our <laughs> own device. device. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. But I don't think in the '40s they saw it right. d- evolving into. I mean, you get a paycheck now. There's 18 different blocks filled in, many of which are your various benefits and programs you participate in. Some is coming out of your pay. Some your employer's contributing to 401k plans, disability insurance, um, high deductible plan, savings accounts, and all that kind of crazy stuff. Back then, it was just how about some health insurance for ten bucks a month? Kind of. Yeah. So, yeah. so the anxiety you remember having when you were an employer, my clients are having now about uh, the the cost uh, and availability of insurance, and what would Medicaid expansion do to that? Um, the workforce participation problem they're all having would would Medicaid expansion make that better or worse or matter at all? Um, who might go part time? or quit if they had Medicaid expansion available instead of employer-provided. Those are all unknowns, and they're all very material to especially 
small employers. The smaller you are, the more this stuff matters uh, to you. Absolutely. Um, and so there. Uh, I'm glad I'm not a small employer. Well, and and the question though, Pepper is. Uh, as, as you well know, uh, just for the benefit of our audience, if you, a small employer is considered one with fewer than 50 employees. For, for, for Affordable Federal. Care Act purposes, yes. That's right. So, uh, And they're not compelled by the Affordable Care Act law to offer so-called minimum essential affordable coverage That's to correct. their employees. The large employees are, small aren't. If if they offer it, the details of this coverage are controlled by the Affordable Care Act, but th- their offering of it or not is not compelled. We'll continue it on the other side of the break. we got Pepper Crutcher, attorney with Balsh and Bingham. We'll dig into this uh, in even greater detail. Stay with us. If you're feeling anxious about you, check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. The great Jackson Brown. You have entertained Pepper here, um, Rhino, with the little Eagles, and now Jackson Brown. That's right up his alley. Uh, Pepper, by the way, is a musician in his own right. Likes to play a little bit. So we're back in the Element Well studio. All right, so this ERISA law is uh, dictates a lot of we can, what we can and cannot do as employers. Uh, vis-a-vis uh, benefits, health care coverage, et cetera, and retirement plans, too, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You get uh, Most Americans get most of their benefits through their employment and because of the tax preference, and that's heavily regulated by ERISA. Right. All right, so with respect to, you know, the big hot topic down there at the Capitol, they're talking about Medicaid expansion. It's nothing new. They've talked about it uh, in years past. It's been available since 2014. The law passed in 2010. Um, the provision which included the funding for and the program for the expansion group, which uh, generally is referred to as able-bodied adults. Um, traditional Medicaid does not cover those. It, it's really just what the left calls the working poor. That's the way they always – they don't say able-bodied adults. I believe able-bodied adults is actually in somewhere the bill, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, they call it the working poor. Uh, and that's okay, whatever. But the bottom line is 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 that there are uh, those who work who have a very low income uh, from working that uh, don't qualify for Medicaid in the state of Mississippi today. They do qualify for subsidized coverage in the exchanges, the ACA exchanges. And I got to tell you, I've always been confused on the overlap because now, as you know, if one applies, they direct them to Medicaid. 
by law. Right. And that, I believe, is mostly, even though I've never seen this stated anywhere, is because it's cheaper for the federal government to cover uh, their health care through Medicaid than it is to subsidize their premiums in the exchanges. Yes. I think that's the reason. I, I think so, too. So you, so the point I'm making is you got this, this, um, the range of incomes which are eligible for uh, subsidized coverage, and based on the the American Rescue Plan, and now per, more permanently in the Inflation Reduction Act, 100 to 150 percent zero cost premiums. Actually, more generous than Medicaid from a premium perspective can be. And probably better for the provider, too, because nothing pays worse than Medicaid. Right. They get reimbursed by (laughs) commercial. The problem, however, and I don't know how much you can say about this, the problem is the carriers that sell in the exchanges nationwide, but in particular in Mississippi, they don't have the best uh, and the most robust provider network. And the last thing a person wants when they're paying for insurance is to go to a doctor to only to find out, oh, we don't take your coverage. you got to pay before you leave. You can file it later and wait two months and haggle to get reimbursed by your, your uh, carrier. But what people want to do is put that card down, and at the end of the encounter, they say, oh, we'll file it. Here's your $20 copay. That's what the experienced people want. Would you agree? That's yes. what most people want. Yes. So there's especially a problem. If, especially if you're getting it as employment benefit. Yes. Yes, exactly. Good point. So we have Blue Cross Blue Shield. It's no secret. Um, they have the most robust provider network in the state. And in almost all 50 states, there's usually one or two that pretty much just dominate with respect to their provider networks. They, they just, they've been there the longest. They've got the relationships. They've got lots of assets and resources in the state. They sponsor the ball teams. You know exactly where I'm going with this. I mean, they're, they're the community and, corporate and, citizens. And they know their data better than everybody else. And that's why they're number one. Because uh, they live in the state. They function yeah. in the state. They have the benefit of all that, they do not sell, does Blue Cross, in the Mississippi Exchange. Um, I honestly think if somehow they would, we could fix this uninsured problem and and increase the, uh, improve the financial situation in the hospital community in the state tomorrow if Blue Cross would start selling individual policies in the exchanges. I can't express opinion on that, but you should have Brian Lag on your show. <laughs> okay, I know I know you could, I, but yeah. I can. So, um, and I believe that they don't really want to sell individual coverage in the exchanges. They don't want those customers. That's just my opinion. Otherwise, why would they? Who who would say, "Well, I have this vehicle to go sell more of what I what I offer"? No, I don't want to do that. They may actually buy it. I mean, that's what it looks like to me, to the average person. And I know you can't say anything about that. I, I will say this: I I, I generally uh, think it's a bad idea for government to coerce any market participants to sell or buy anything they don't want to sell or buy. Well, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting yeah. that I think government should do that uh, uh, with, with Blue Cross here either. I, I don't want Blue Cross to say, Gerard says government. Ought. No, I'm not saying that. I totally agree. It should be voluntary. I'm just expressing that we have a, a carrier in the state that has a very strong, robust provider network. And and I dare say they've got the, the market, the leading market share, certainly in the group market in the state of Mississippi. I think that's fair fair yes. to say. Okay, yes. I haven't seen the data. I, pr- I probably could find it, um, but 
it just seems to me like that the providers would get reimbursed at the higher commercial rate. Um, the the patients, the subscribers would would get access to coverage. It has the most robust network. Um, they would get subsidies from the federal government. Wouldn't cost the state of Mississippi anything. Problem solved. Well, I, I suspect insurers generally would say, "Hey, show us a greatly increased." pool of people who are buying insurance, and we may change on our view about whether we want to be selling into that market. Okay. So it's chicken and an egg situation. And I would I would agree. They need a little demographic data. How, yeah. for, what's the age of those, right, of those right. people? Because the older you are, the more likely you are to need their, uh, their coverage, and you're going to file more claims. So are we talking about adding more young, healthy people or old, sick people? Right. Right? That's what they, right. Uh, their actuaries are figuring that out on a daily basis. When I was learning the Affordable Care Act, I went to a conference in Las Vegas where, where one of the leading experts in America said, you know, uh, health care really hasn't been um, a calling or a profession for a long time. It's not even a business anymore. It's um, it, it's it's a data it's data science. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's a bunch of wonky data people that yeah. are sitting back in their offices with about 14 screens in front of them figuring all this out. This is what you who you need to be signing up, what you need to charge them, and what you need to yeah. be paying the providers. Yeah. At, at a granular, real-time level that, that you and I, well, you might grasp it, but no lawyer grasps it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a math exercise. Yeah. Totally now. Uh, and, and it's a math exercise where it has to be in conformance with law on top of that. Yes. I actually helped a client write Affordable Care Act compliance software where I had to oh I had to translate federal regulations into Boolean logic statements. <laughs> one of the most difficult things I've ever done. Which software developers do um, as as a matter of every day, but they rely on people like you to tell yeah. them what what goes where with respect to those Boolean operators in, in the expression, right? Yeah. What are the terms that go on which side of the Boolean? It, it barely makes sense in English. <laughs> All right, so there there is a legitimate concern. Um, and if we run out of time, we can continue into the next segment. There is a legitimate concern on opponents of expansion that we'd have all these people that are currently getting coverage from their employer. They would go to Medicaid, and that could have a ripple effect, a negative ripple effect. There's no doubt. And the, and the big one I think they would focus on is if that means more people are signing up for Medicaid under expansion, that means the state's share increases based on what's being estimated. It's only 10%, but if it's 10% of a much bigger number, that, that could cause a, a financial problem. And, and we've, we've already got the worst workforce participation yeah. rate in the nation. Barely half of our able-bodied adults are in the workforce, that is, either working or looking for work. Um, how many of them would drop to part-time or drop out if if now Medicare, Medicaid is newly available to them? I mean, that's... Nobody, nobody seems to have good data about that. Well, you know, something I just feel like I've always felt like we need to do that d- doesn't seem to be, be taken very seriously down there at the Capitol is, has anybody ever talked to any of these people and say, hey, what would you do here and why would you do that? What about the half of the population that can work that isn't? Has anybody gone to them saying, how come he ain't working? Well, you know, the Hilltop Report, you've referenced yeah. already, it, it, at least uh, it, it, com- it looks at actual experience of other states that expanded Medicaid, but, you know, there, there are so many different kinds of Medicaid expansion that it's questionable whether any of those are actually predictive of what ours would look Agree. like. Agree. And, and something else that's a bit unique in Mississippi is that we have an outsized number of hospital institutions that are owned by government. 
their their municipal or county facilities. We have way more, I think, than as a percentage of total hospitals than any other state. And so that's got to be figured into to, to the math and the model as well. Uh, that I that I don't know any that anybody has. The Hilltop references it a little bit in their analysis, where they show kind of the the pluses and the minuses from a, a dollars perspective. Yes. So um, any benefits to the publicly owned hospitals could offset otherwise uh, losses that would be caused that's right. by increased enrollment. That's right. Yeah. From the uncompensated care right. is what they're saying. Right. So I mean, because the taxpayers essentially footing the bill for the uncompensated care, not the private hospitals, because these are public hospitals. Right, at least one large one owned directly by the state and some by counties. That's true. Right. That's a good point. We can continue on the other side. I want to get into uh, a discussion about some of this non-compete legislation oh, okay. and gig worker legislation. It's coming out of Washington. One coming of my, right back. Another one of my favorites. <laughs> We're coming right back. Okay, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Whenever you perform it, I just gestured with my thumb up in the air. That's the way you do it on the stage there at the Superdome. 90,000, I don't know, it was packed when they came. I want to say I was in college at the time. They went to Superdome. And they set Superdome up, right, so that you're on the floor, of course, for concerts. And it was a big old show. But I just remember him there with his thumb under my thumb. We're talking to Pepper Crutcher, uh, attorney at Balsh and Bingham. Uh, legal scholar on all things related to employment law, uh, his his clients. Uh, so you you only represent employers, right? Isn't that the way it works, Pepper? Yes, you really can't work both sides of the street. That's what I thought, yes. and you, and that's why, of course, you uh, represented us. Uh, a valuable representation. So when you get into some of these other uh, nuances, before we go on to these non compete rules that are being challenged, and the Democrats want to completely eliminate non-compete employment or compete agreements or provisions of employment agreements, which would include non-compete, non-competition. And, and, and a few Republicans, too. Okay, you're right. They yeah. do. I've seen that as yeah. well. My, uh, you're absolutely right. Thank you for correcting me. So, But from an employer perspective, I just feel like with respect to Medicaid expansion, we need more data. How, how many people here really do fit into this category where they're at risk for uh, for leaving their employer coverage or group coverage, going in to uh, sign up for expansion if the state were to pass it. How many people are in the uh, ACA coverage? By the way, I, I did research that. There's 183,000 in the Mississippi signed up in the exchanges. 24,000 of them are in the 100 to 150 percent federal poverty level range. 
because it's in, as you know, the, it's income-based, and the subsidies are based on the range of income and that you fit in. That's free, free, premium-free insurance. Right now it is right. because of the American Rescue Plan and then extended in the Inflation Reduction Act under uh, Joe Biden. So 24000 state of Mississippi. So if every one of them said, I'm going to Medicaid, because now they could get coverage of Medicaid without the out-of-pocket cost that they're having to bear in the uh, in the exchanges with insurance in the exchanges, which I think is limited to thirty four fifty with the cost sharing. I, I wish reductions. there were I wish there were some way to know whether that's actually influencing anyone's decisions about agree. to enroll or not. I agree, uh, and that's why I said, can we just go talk to some people? We got twenty four thousand. Surely we can figure out who they are, and they, they don't. They're not compelled by by government to to speak to talk. But I think that some probably would share their thoughts on, yeah, I'm in the exchanges. Here's what I don't like and do like about it. If you guys were to expand Medicaid and this is what it would look like, here's here's the decision I would make. Shouldn't we have that to guide this? Uh, 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 another data point I'd love to see is how many of those people we think are in the expansion population um, aren't in the economy because they're not in the on-the-record economy and they're in the off-the-record economy, in which case – would they really want to tell you anything about their income right, <laughs> in exactly. order to enroll in Medicaid? Well, I, I don't I don't honestly think we have all the tools, the assets, the resources, the systems to even properly determine that. Honestly, you told me and I've I've kind of played with it myself just as a as a possible um, buyer of coverage in the exchanges. You just input your data and then they settle up with you when you you file your tax return is the way it works. Right. Assuming you're going to file a tax return and you don't just stay on the coverage, but you know how crazy that is. We don't have enough people to go police this and to go chase everybody down. Right. Medicaid certainly doesn't. Right. They, like, they can't do it now, honestly. Yes. And I would say if the legislature is thinking about enacting Medicaid expansion, you need to make sure that you provide them with, with the resources, talking about the Division of Medicaid, Mississippi Division of Medicaid, that they need to to accurately um, and efficiently administer the program because they're struggling now, honestly, with seven hundred fifty, eight hundred thousand, still trying to do the return redeterminations after the the um, CARES Act signed into law by President Trump said you can't you can't kick anybody off once they're on Medicaid the continuous enrollment provision right and now they're having to unwind it and the last data I looked at said that the the Division of Medicaid in Mississippi still has 65% of their total enrolled to uh, to review to see if they're still eligible 65% now I'm not blasting Medicaid it's a massive undertaking as you know and they don't have enough people or the systems to yeah, do it. If, if, folks, if you want to see how compl- complex it is just to figure out what your modified adjusted household <laughs> income is, go go on the Medicaid website for Mississippi and just download the application. That's right. All, I think nine pages of it. That's exactly right. <laughs> and, and see what has to be checked. Right, so same thing would apply here, uh, except it's probably even more difficult here because most of these people are working that would that would seek coverage in the uh, in the expansion coverage group. So, um, all right, let's talk about non-compete agreements. You know, you know these are very common in many industries, very common in my industry, in the IT industry. However, ours was that you helped us with was a little different. It wasn't a strict, you simply cannot go work for anybody that looks like this company, essentially, or operates in the industry within uh, some, um, some geographic, I guess, radius, so to speak. 
Uh, but it but it didn't strictly for, forbid that. It did strictly forbid you from sharing secrets and confidential information. It wasn't just you absolutely cannot go to work there, which was your recommendation, and we yeah. used that effectively. Yeah, most most Mississippi employers who use non-competes don't appreciate how the law has changed against non-compete use outside of Mississippi because it's Mississippi is is one of the still the most staunch enforcement states, but uh, everywhere else and. Uh, increasingly in Mississippi even, your protectable interest that allows you to enforce these agreements is stopping your intellectual property from being stolen from you and given to a competitor or used by your former employee in competition with you. Customer list. And the worst, well, no, the worst problem is things that people have in their heads that they don't have to take your list. They don't have to upload your docs to to a a cloud. Just knowledge. Just knowledge that they they developed that belongs to you or somebody else developed that belongs to you, and they can take down the street and sell to your uh, competitor. That's a serious problem, and the FTC's rule really doesn't adequately or fairly address that problem. So what's the deal with government, uh, mainly Democrats, uh, uh, proposing this? But as you indicated, there's some Republicans that, that are on board with it as well. They just want to eliminate non-compete agreements altogether. They feel like they restrict people from working where they want. The, the, the Linda Kahn, who's chairman of the uh, FTC, has said, and a lot of people in Congress uh, believe, that non-compete agreements depress wages by decreasing competition for talented people. Hmm. So if Gerard can can go work for somebody else uh, at any time, somebody else is more likely to make him a job offer than if they know that Gerard is tied to a non-compete. Why even recruit Gerard? Sure. And yeah. and you know this. Whenever we would entertain employing someone, making an offer, first question, do you have a non-compete agreement? Will you send it to me? And I'd call you, and you'd say, send it to me. And, I'd, and then you'd come back with an opinion. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of the things I see over and over again is, you know, 20 years ago, some lawyer drafted this agreement, and then the employer has been just using it and updating without ever calling their lawyer, and often the agreements that are actually being used are worse than laughable. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> and, and and so I'm on the I'm on the employee new employer side of this, and I'm I'm reading this on the phone with him, and I'm laughing like, oh cheapers! Oh. Look, this is <laughs> it looks like this was once a product of a lawyer, but it it hasn't been for a long time. <laughs> well, you and I, of course, went to court, yeah. uh, as you recall, yeah. over one of these. It was an employee that we hired, and and uh, we were sued, and was the employee by their former employer. Went to court, and the court awarded damages, but it was peanuts at the end of the day, yeah. as you recall. And uh, and that thing went on for a while. I think did we go to Supreme Court? Got well, some. Well, you, you you got out of it. The other party that was in that's it right. My went company on, went did. on for four more years. That's yeah. right. That's what yeah. I remember. And it's a jury trial. You in, you informed me. You, you educated me. Hey, if it's a dollar of economic damages, I remember you telling me that in Mississippi, you get a jury. Is that right? Uh, yes. It, we, you basically anything in circuit court, you get a jury for. Okay. Yeah. So this jury was there trying to. But I remember going in front of. Uh, um, Judge Chapman at the time, remember? Yeah. And, and him, so the first thing he said to me and the lawyer representing uh, the plaintiff here, and you were in the room, too, can't you business guys just work this out? You remember that? Yes. Why are you and, in and, court? And that is a typical judicial reaction to most employment cases, and especially in non-compete cases, where typically there's not a lot of money at stake in non-compete cases. It's the principle and the ability to, to make your 
still employees believe that they're enforceable. That's why you're litigating. Right. And a judge has, okay, I've got 17 criminal trials I've got to get rid of this month. I've got uh, a $2 billion uh, contract breach case, and you want me to spend how long on this? That's exactly right. But as you recall, the plaintiff actually said that. They said, yeah, we're doing this to send a message to our staff. Don't think about violating that non-compete agreement. Yes, and that's what the FTC is trying to do with their rule, is send the car's hmm. contrary message out through all America. I guess I feel, my feeling is this is a voluntary agreement between the parties. We don't need the government to say, no, you can't make those voluntary agreements. Uh, I, I think common laws of the states and, and the courts of the states are doing just a fine job of this, and FTC is getting in way over its head and about to mess things up badly. Appreciate you coming in, Pepper. Always a good time talking to you, man. Thanks. Thanks. Coming right back in the Element Well Studio, final segment. If you're a awesome. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. That's a good one with Pepper's exit there. <laughs> Little night court. It was also on the all here request line. Okay, gotcha. We got another one. Uh, was it? Who is it? Uh, just dropped in. All Kenny here. Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I didn't there have you time go. Squeeze that. Uh, we'll get it. We can get it tomorrow though. So, I just want to say something about Pepper. He was. Uh, I got to tell you, he was invaluable uh, asset uh, to our company as our employment lawyer and, uh, lawyer. and uh, let me knock on some wood. We had very few issues. It just was, an, I think, the nature of the industry and uh, and, and the good folks that worked in the company. Um, I, I, I know that uh, he, he would talk about some of the cases he was working on without, of course, disclosing any, any names. And, of course, there are other employers. And I'd hear some stuff he would be, be telling me. I said, man, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that stuff. But Employment law is complicated, and Pepper, um, if you can't tell, and hopefully you can, he's a legal scholar, I'm telling you. He knows that stuff cold. So, so valuable. And sometimes, Rhino, he'd write me things or say things, and I'd say, can you say that one more time <laughs> try to follow it? When he when he turned put his lawyer hat on, you know what I'm saying, because he, you got to. I mean, that's the way you have to deal with those issues. But, man, he is... Um, He's brilliant, and he's an asset to everyone he serves. And there, there's plenty of others in our state as well. We're blessed with that. I just happen to have a personal experience with, with him. And, and as our company grew and we got more complex and had people uh, in other states, you know, because there's an issue there where where you can practice, where you're um, licensed to practice, of course, and it passed the bar in those states and so forth. That could come into play. But, that, I mean, when you start – Branching out, and you have people in multiple states. It it dramatically uh, complicates your life from a from a legal, especially from an employment perspective. And man, you're you're walking on eggshells. Fortunately, I sold my company. We sold our company before then, but I, you know, before all the craziness really started setting in, as you guys know, it, it very much is. 
So how about a little attention to going after those that do not pay for their health care service instead of piling more debt or responsibility on those that take care of our responsibilities in regards to all this desire to expand Medicaid? Well, and I hear you. So what about the blinded disabled? Do, do you not think that society, for example, or children that grow up or live in, in uh, low-income households, should we just forget about them? Uh, serious question, because that's what Medicaid covers. So right now... Again, even if we didn't expand Medicaid, they could go to the exchanges. And why doesn't anybody gripe about that? I mean, we have 183,000 people in the state of Mississippi that get coverage in the ACA exchanges that's subsidized by the taxpayers. And those with incomes below uh, between zero and 150% of the federal poverty level, that's roughly $15,000 to $21,000 annually, they get zero-cost coverage in the exchanges. There are 24,000 enrolled who fit that uh, income range in the state of Mississippi. So we're, we're paying for that now. I don't know what the solution is. And this is something else that I'll point out. It's not that you're paying them. It's that what you're really paying or the taxpayers are paying are the hospitals and the providers for taking care of them. And that's where it gets a little different. It's not like you're buying them food. It's not like you're giving them a car. It's not like you're paying for their phone or their Internet. It's a little different in that, no, you're paying a third party to take care of them. That's what you're doing. Uh, and and without that, the problem we have right now is that these third parties are providing these services, and they're not getting paid for it. I don't see how anybody could say, yeah, that's fair. You just got to keep taking care of them. I'm sorry. You can't get paid. Uh, interesting text from uh, Casey on the ceasefire text line. I, I did get permission to read this from her. She's from uh, Ocean Springs. She says, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield of Mississippi insurance through one of my husband's business endeavors. His situation may be changing, so we are going to have to look at insurance options. I went to the Blue Cross Blue Shield Mississippi website and determined that they do not sell family plans with similar coverage to what we have now. So I'll have to buy five individual plans at $1,000 a month each to get similar coverage. Five thousand bucks a month that is ridiculous my daughter had a major accident last september and spent almost a week in the icu we have yet to receive a bill from the hospital the neurosurgeon the anesthesiologist from all the tests cat scans etc nothing and you know my fear is casey that's just going to drop on you and rhino you know about this he'll drop on you one day and you open up it's a hundred grand that's what happens I mean, it's just by the time it goes through all their process and they're arguing right now you know this is what happens who's going to pay what and how much are we going to pay before we send a bill to the patient say, boom, this is your responsibility? That's exactly what's happening right now. They're haggling over that. It's to the point now where the providers, the hospitals, they got a full-time army of people that have to fight with the insurance companies to get paid, and the insurance companies have a full-time army of people that fight with them not to pay them. That's, that's exactly the way it works. Man, oh, man. Appreciate that, and thank you, uh, Casey, for letting us share that. But that, see, it's that situation right now that gives the Medicaid proponents more ammunition, if you want to know the truth. Not that Casey would qualify for that based on her income, and certainly not asking for that. I'm just saying it's those scenarios that give their their argument a little bit more girth. We're out of here today. We thank you so much for joining us. Back with you again tomorrow. Stay safe, and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.